right, let's take our Bible this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning, Romans 12, and uh, we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 2 as our text here today, and uh, the title of the message is Renewed Hearts for the Christian Life. I didn't want to start the next section of Ephesians because we're going to have another break next week with the conference, and so I wanted to keep it kind of together, and uh, I also wanted to preach a message that would kind of direct our minds towards... Uh, really, our conference is coming up this weekend, and I uh, pray that this text would also just be a challenge and an encouragement to us uh, in our Christian life. And uh, so we're looking at renewed hearts in the Christian life. And so Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and verse 2, and I particularly love this passage. I come back to it often as it is very practical in nature and a great reminder for us in our Christian living. Uh, But I love how it fits within the scope of the whole of the book of Romans and what comes before it as well as what comes after it. And uh, so let's read our text together, and I pray that God would speak to us here today. Notice that Paul writing to the church in Rome, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and and acceptable and perfect. So this question comes to my mind, are we living the Christian life? This may seem like a Simple question, maybe a redundant question, but it is a real question for us. Are we truly living the Christian life? Are we fulfilling with our life what the Lord intends for us to be as Christians? And we could take that even to a more broader scope to the local church. Are we as a church fulfilling what we ought to be as a church? You know, the Scriptures teach us what a Christian is to be and what a church is to be, and I think you would agree with me that in this day and time, the term Christian is used very loosely, isn't it? Uh, Even the term church is used very loosely. Um, There are many who will identify as Christian but do not really know what it is to be a Christian or live out what it is to be a Christian. There are many who identify as churches today who you can evidently see that, no, that is not what the Bible describes as a church and what a church is to be and to do. And I think it's important for us to uh, have frequent examination of our Christian life, of our church life, because the reality is the Christian life is not set on autopilot once you become a Christian, is it? Nor is the church set on autopilot. We're not programmed to be... Uh, perfect and continuously stay on the right course, fulfilling all that we're called to be. You know, nowadays they've got vehicles that you can set on autopilot. You know, I used to think that, well, that never happened back a long time ago, and I'd think about futuristic stuff. You know, when I was a kid, I used to watch the Jetsons. Anybody else watch the Jetsons? And uh, you think that, oh, the future, what's going to happen in the future, the future? And one of those things is cars driving themselves, right? And now Tesla and a couple other brands are... They've got that going. I don't think that I would venture out into trusting that. Uh, I saw a video of a guy uh, trusting his GPS on his car, and he's just sitting there sleeping. And I'm like, no thanks, right? Uh, I'm going to be in control of that vehicle. They've got autopilot for those sorts of things. 
But we, that, that doesn't work that way for the Christian life. We might wish our Christian life could be on autopilot and just go like it's supposed to go, but it doesn't. You see, the day we're born again, we're not made perfect in our flesh. The Christian life is a life of growth. The Christian life is a life of obedience. It is a life of sanctification, being sanctified and living holy. And this particular text Paul has given to us, it, it is a very practical text. It's a practical text that builds upon the deep doctrinal truth of God and His workings in the gospel. Now, I love the book of Romans, and someday I'll venture in and we'll expound this verse by verse. I long to do that at some point when God makes it clear the right time is right for that. But throughout all of Romans, what do you read? You read about who man is. You read about who Christ is, about what He has done in His gospel work, His redemptive work. You read about God's sovereignty in all of that. And, and all of it culminates here really to the last part of the book that is actually practical for us in nature. Kind of similar to Ephesians, right? We're in the practical section of Ephesians. But as we continue in our individual Christian life and our local church life, we often find ourselves in need of renewal. Renewal in our hearts, renewal renewal in our minds of what it is to be a Christian and what it is to be the church, what we are called to do and be. And so I want to point out some things from this text that I pray would challenge us, encourage us, and stir our minds in the direction of renewal as we prepare for our conference coming up this weekend. Notice with me, number one, this morning, I want you to see the plea to the Christian life. Because there's a plea that Paul is making here. A plea, a command, an urgency. There's, there's something that he's appealing to them that he wants them to take to heart. And I want to point out two things about this plea. The plea, firstly, this appeal that he gives, it is rooted in a couple things. The first thing I'm going to point out that is rooted in is the majesty of God. God's majesty, the very glory of His character and what He's done and continues to do. And I love that this is the foundation. Because I believe this, that, uh, that, that proper application of the Christian life really is founded upon proper doctrine. Proper theology. Orthopraxy is built on orthodoxy. So orthopraxy is the application, the living out, what we do, and the orthodoxy is the truth of doctrine, what truth is. And so we are called to build our lives upon the truth. Now Paul opens and says, I appeal to you, therefore. So let's break it down for a moment. The word appeal here means to urge strongly. To urge strongly, to exhort, to encourage. So, so there is a strong weight with what Paul is saying here. That word appeal, he is, he's giving a, a urgent plea to the people of God. Now we've heard many different urgent pleas of something important. Jubilee and David often will come into my room with some urgent pleas, some urgent requests that are in their mind. And they say, Daddy, 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 come here, come look, come look. I'm like, okay, what is it? Look, it's a mosquito, kill it. Like, you had to interrupt me for that, right? Or a spider. It's urgent to them. But, you know, Paul's doing the same thing here with greater emphasis and greater importance. The Christian life is, is far more urgent, or more urgent than the trivial things of this world, this present world. 
And I believe that one of the greatest tragedies in Christianity is that the Christian life, it is not seen as it should be. The Christian life is not something that you just try out. It's something that you are. You know, there's that kind of idea today that why don't you just try Jesus out? Well, try out the Christian life. That's not how it works. (laughs) One must be born again. And once you're born again, you understand that you are in the Christian life. You can't leave it. And the Christian life has a high call to it and how we live and, and what we do. And often, if we're not careful, we can lose sight of the importance of who we are and what we do. We need renewal in this matter. You see, the true foundation of Paul's urgency in this plea is found in the previous passage, which I love. You'll notice he adds that word, therefore. And what do we know therefore means? It means what, what came before, what's come before this, right? And, and we know as we look at Romans 11, the last few verses, some of the most glorious verses, this doxology of praise to God and His character, His nature, what He's done. Look with me, if you would, at verse 33 of chapter 11. And, and this is what chapter 12 is built upon. What he builds this upon, verse 33 through verse 36, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him... And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Every Christian ought to say amen to what he has just said. But that amen is not just to that section. It's to all of Romans all the way up to this point, friend. All of it, friend. From, from, from our, our, our own sinful fallen nature to the redemption we have in Christ to God's sovereignty in all things. This glorious doxology, understand it is rooted in the rich theology of God. And understand that all that we are, all that we know, all that we do, it must be rooted in who God is. One of the greatest problems today is many professing Christians do not truly know who God is. They know a lot about God. They don't know God. Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. You see, there's none through who, who has counseled God, who has taught Him anything, as we see through this text, and as we see the culmination, the sum of it all, in verse 36, this is where we find really the foundation to it all. For from Him and through Him and to Him Some things are all things. And I love this statement, to Him, to Him, to Him be glory forever. Amen. Glory belongs to our God. And what we see in Scripture and in life is that all that we have and all that we are is from God. He is our glorious Creator who has made us in all things for His own pleasure and by His own will. As Revelation 4.11 tells us, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Friend, the glory of God is chief above all things. 
And that is something we must realize when it comes to our individual Christian life. Why am I here? You're here for the glory of God. That's what we must see when it comes to our church. Why does Lee Creek Baptist Church exist? It exists for the glory of God. The glory of God. That's the root to Paul's plea. But there's something else here that's rooted in Paul's plea. Paul's plea is not only rooted in God's majesty of his character and nature and what he's done, but his, root, his plea is rooted in God's mercies. God's mercies. You say, well, why, why should we live the Christian life? Why should we be, why, why should we live out exactly what Paul says here? Well, one, because of all that he said in Romans up to this point in verse 36, it's all about God's majesty, His glory. But then we see another aspect. Notice that Paul says next in light of this, he says, I appeal to you, brethren, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God. That right there is a pausing point. By the mercies of God. When we consider how great God is, how holy God is, this magnifies how great His mercy is. You see, the gospel of Christ is a gospel of both mercy as well as grace. They are interconnected together. You can't separate the two. They work together. Grace, as we would say in simple terms, grace is getting what you do not deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, think of it, Christian. What do you not deserve today? I'll tell you what you don't deserve, and I'll tell you what I don't deserve. I don't deserve, and you don't deserve, forgiveness of your sins. You don't deserve to be saved. You don't deserve to have redemption. You don't deserve to have eternal life. And yet, by grace alone, you have all of those things. By grace alone, you are redeemed and forgiven and saved all according to God's grace. Now let's think of the opposite side of that coin. What is it that you actually do deserve? What do you deserve today? Well, friend, your sin makes you worthy of death. Physically, you're going to experience that when we have your funeral, right? Or right before it. You're worthy of it spiritually, which we're born that way. We're dead in trespasses and sins before we come to Christ. You deserve death eternally, which is eternal judgment and punishment in the lake of fire. You understand that we are worthy of the greatest hell. Eternal punishment because of our sin. I've always reminded myself of what Jacob said in his days. He said to the Lord, I am not worthy of the least of your mercies. I am not worthy of the very least of your mercies. And yet, by grace and by mercy, God has saved us. Though your sins are many, His mercy is more. God planned redemption. Fulfilled it in Christ alone on our behalf. Revelation 1.5, John the Apostle writes of him and says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. And I want you to notice this last sentence. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. By what? By his blood. By his blood. You see, we as Christians sometimes can 
get too accustomed to that truth where it just goes in our ear, one ear and not the other, and we just go on. We know it's there, we know it's true, but it, it doesn't affect our heart like it ought to affect our hearts. And that's one of the dangers of, uh, of, of becoming mundane and just routine in our Christian life. We get accustomed to the truths that should affect our soul and set our zeal on fire for Christ. This is why the gospel is not just to be preached to unbelievers, but to believers also. You say, well, every, day, every Sunday all I hear is the gospel. That's because you need it every Sunday. We need the gospel, friend. The gospel not only saves us, you understand, it works to sanctify us too. I always love this quote by Martin Luther. He said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. How many of us go a whole day and we just didn't really think about the gospel? It's kind of how life goes. You get busy, you get into your day, you start going, and before you know it, you've gone a whole day, you didn't even think much about salvation, the joy of salvation. You see, God has displayed His mercy to us on the cross. He has purchased our redemption. He has called us out of this world to be His people according to His mercy. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Christian, I'm just as guilty as any of them in becoming accustomed to truth and it not affecting my soul the way it ought to affect my soul. We ought to be stirred within by what Christ has done and what He continues to do for us. It ought to prompt us to praise and sing and glorify Him and live the Christian life as we're called to live it. Now notice with me number two this morning. We see the plea to the Christian life that Paul gives. There's an appeal. The plea is the whole thing, but it's rooted in those two aspects of God's majesty and mercy. But notice with me the practice of the Christian life, because this is where it gets down to uh, the rubber meeting the road, the nuts and bolts of Christian living. You'll notice three aspects I want to point out to you from this text in verse 1 that Paul brings to our attention. How is it that we are to live? We are to live a sacrificial life. We are to live a sacrificial life. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, on the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now, the concept of sacrifice was very prevalent in the Old Testament, wasn't it? I mean, millions of animals, sheep and goats and others, bullocks were Sacrifice on the altar as a covering for sin. Not a permanent one, but a one that was, was meant to essentially point to the final sacrifice. This sacrificial system, it was not foreign to these Christians in Rome. They understood their roots in Christianity and ultimately the chief sacrifice that Christ gave for them. But now they are called, them, they are called not to sacrifice an animal, but to be the sacrifice. To be a living sacrifice. Now think about a sacrifice for a moment. When an animal is on the altar, and, and say in the Old Testament, when an animal is on the altar and sacrificed, slain, what percentage of that animal died? Was it 50%, 70%, 90%? 
99.9% of it dead. When a sacrifice took place, it died 100%. You see, when Christ offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins, did he completely die or partially die? He completely died. There's no such thing as partially dying, right? You're either alive or you're dead. He completely died, physically and literally. That's the only way to atone for sin. His sacrifice was a full and final one. Now, we as Christians who are living in this world, we're called to be a sacrifice, but not the same way as the Old Testament sacrifices took place. We're called to be a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Now, in this sense, we are to fully, 100%, die to self and sin of the old nature and live unto Christ. Our life is to be a sacrifice while we continue to live in our bodies. Now, this may seem contradictory, but it's somewhat of a paradox. Sacrifices die, but we're to be a sacrifice that's alive. And here's what you find with Scripture is that it teaches us that we are both in Christ, we are both dead in Christ, and we are alive in Christ at the same time. What do you mean by that? In Christ, we've been made dead to sin and alive unto God. That's the difference between you and the lost world around you. The lost world around us is not dead to sin, they are dead in sin. There's a difference. They're dead in their sins, but you and I have been made dead to sin but given life unto God. And there's a practical application in that principle. And I want you to see it in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4 for a moment. I love this text too. It ties together with it. Colossians 3, verse 1 through verse 4. Or 1 through 3. Notice what he says here. If you then have been raised with Christ. You know what he's saying there? Christ was risen from the dead, and He's conquered death, right? You and I spiritually have been raised with Him. If you're born again today, you have experienced a spiritual resurrection. Because you were dead in sins, but you've been quickened. You've been made alive by the gospel and by the work of the Spirit. But notice, for those who have been raised in Christ, if they're raised with Him, notice what He tells them, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Do you see that the Christian is both alive and dead in their own respective sense? They are dead to sin and to the world while being alive unto Christ. And because of this truth, Christian, the focus for us by way of application is to live not for things below, but for things above. To set our minds on the things that are above. Now, I think one of the great detriments to our Christian life today is that we don't think about the things above enough. Our minds are constantly consumed by the things below. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said, we do not contemplate heaven enough. We just don't. We don't think about it enough. We ought to. We don't think about the temporal nature of this world. You see, the life of the Christian is a calling to live beyond this world and not for this world. 
We're in this world, but we're not of this world. And so therefore, we, we have a different perspective than the rest of the world around us has. The rest of the world looks at their life as right here, right now. What can I gain? What can I enjoy? What can I do? They don't really think about what comes after my life is over. The Christian has a different perspective. This is how we're to use our bodies, Paul says in our Romans text, because our bodies indicates our life, right? Our bodies is our life, how we use them as a living sacrifice, our mortal life on earth. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 6.20. He says to those Christians, you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, your life. So we are dead to sin and this world by our position in Christ, and because of this, we are to be dead practically in how we live, meaning we seek to put off sin, put off the world, and yield ourselves as a sacrifice to Christ day by day. And that takes application from us personally, doesn't it? Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? If any man come after me, let him do what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The first aspect of that is often the hardest, is denial of ourselves. C.T. Studd rightly said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make Christian, I'm challenging you today to listen to, to listen to the words of Scripture and ask yourself, am I living, am I a living sacrifice? This ties into this next point here. Not only are we to be a living sacrifice, notice that we are to live a sanctified life. It all ties together. We are to live a sanctified life. Notice that he continues in this plea with the Christian to be holy and acceptable to God. Now, to be holy, understand, is to be entirely distinct. When we speak of God's holiness, it not only includes His perfection and sinlessness, but all of His character attributes, because to be holy means that He's entirely other than us. He's entirely distinct from all else. He is holy. He is set apart by Himself. And so God's people from the beginning have been called to be a distinct people. Even with ancient Israel, what did God say? He's called them out to be His holy, peculiar people. Interesting how that same truth is reiterated to Christians in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, 15-16, listen to the Scriptures. Peter says, But as he who has called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So what God is saying is that, I, the holy God, who have called you out of the world, you are to be holy because I am holy and you belong to me who is holy. See, as God's people, should there be something distinctly different about us from the world around us? Should God's people have distinct beliefs that differ, convictions and practices in our life? Yes, absolutely. And what is it that makes those beliefs and convictions and practices distinct? What is it that makes them distinct and different? The the answer is, all of those things are rooted in the authority of Scripture alone. Because this book that you and I have, that we're reading, we're studying, that is the 
authority and guide of our life, what do we call this book? It is called the Holy Bible. The Holy Scriptures, isn't it? Because this itself is set apart from all other forms of writings and Scriptures. You see what, how this is all intertwined together? Scripture itself is holy. And as you and I live according to the Scriptures, our life will be holy because it's dictated by that which is holy. We are to be holy people. Holy people, sanctified people. That is what Paul is urging the Roman Christians to do because they lived in a depraved, pagan, degenerate society and culture. And we're seeing a lot of that in our own culture, aren't we? You'll notice that as we do such things, he says that we will be acceptable to God. Now understand that the term acceptable means pleasing unto him. Pleasing unto him in how we live. And that's, that should be our goal, right? It does not mean that we somehow are trying to work our way to heaven. But that's out of the question. It does not mean that we're somehow going to gain God's favor through our works. Understand this, Christian. God's favor has been set upon his people in Christ by grace alone. And that favor is linked all the way to eternity past. Grace. And one thing this truth must urge us to be in our life is pleasing to the one who has been pleased to save us. Isn't that what we should want? To please our great God with this new life He's given us. Paul said it this way to the Colossians. In Colossians 1.10, he says, So as to walk worthy in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I can tell you right now, Christian, the first person you ought to seek to please in your life is Christ. Not your spouse, not your family, not your pastor. The first person you must seek to please is Christ. That is, that is the key point of all of Christian life and ministry, everything. It is about the glory of Christ and pleasing Christ. We live for the audience of one. We do what we do for the audience of one. I stand before you and preach the gospel for the audience of one. And as long as I've pleased Him, as long as you've pleased Him, it matters not who you displease. It matters not. Because you're going to displease a lot of people in this world. You might as well just buckle up and get ready for it. If you're pleasing everybody in the world, then chances are you're going the wrong direction. You're not going to please everybody in this world. But when you please Christ, you're always in the majority. Letter C, we must live a serving life. Notice that Paul says here in verse four, verse 1 again as he closes, he says, for this is your spiritual worship. Now, this particular Greek term here, it can also be translated and is translated as reasonable service. Worship and service are, are the same word, and they, they convey both of, those, both of those terms. But you understand that reasonable service, it is also an act of worship of the one true God. You see, God has got, got called His people to this life, to live this life in a way that is a life of service to Him, in a way that is a life of worship to Him. Living the Christian life is a life and act of worship. It's an act of service. 
You see, God's not called us to do anything or commanded us to do anything that's unreasonable. Is it reasonable, based on who God is and what He's done, uh, to live a holy life? Is it reasonable to, uh, to, to be a living sacrifice? Absolutely it is. This is a life of service to Christ, our Lord, Savior, and King. The Hebrews author shows it in a worshipful nature, and, uh, and he uses some of the same language that Paul uses here. I'll, I'll read this to you, Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. He says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You notice that he's emphasizing this, this, this concept of praising, which is worship, right? The aspect of giving, which is giving is an act of worship, in case you didn't know that too. All that we do here with Christ is about worship and service unto him. And you see the similar exhortations. It's, he calls it sacrifices. He calls it uh, pleasing unto God. And so we as God's people, friend, are created, called, converted, and consecrated to this end. To please God and to glorify Him. Christian, this is what the Christian life is to be. About Him. Which brings me to number three. And I hope it will tie in together all that what this is focused on, but I want you to see the pattern of the Christian life. The pattern of the Christian life. Look with me as we look at verse 2. Because we think about the need for renewal in our hearts. This is what Paul says to them. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Two things here that we are called to do in this verse. We must resist conformity to the world. That, 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 is, that is so urgently needed today. I see this as, as, a, as a major point that we need today, especially in our American culture that is, that is in a downward spiral into further godlessness, in darkness. You see, what is the great hindrance to us from being the Christian we ought to be, from being the living sacrifice, from the church being what the church ought to be. The great hindrance to us is this. It is conformity to the world around us. He says to the Christian, do not be conformed to this world. What's Paul mean by this world? By this world, he's not talking about the earth and the plants and the sky. That's the created world. By world, he is referring to everything that is non-Christian. Everything that is of the evil system and influence around us in the culture and world. Now, what exactly do we see in the culture and world around us? We see various forms of outright blatant evil. But then there's also various forms of professed godliness that actually lacks genuineness. Lacks true Christian nature. Now, it may be easy to resist the plain and open evils around us that are very obvious. Like, right? Things like the LGBTQ movement that is trying to be shoved down our throats. We can see that, oh, we should resist that. That's easy. We should resist abortion and adultery and murder and looting. Looting has become a, a major issue in our, our own nation. 
But Paul, we see even further warning against those things that appear to be godly by many professing Christians in churches that may, they may advocate but are not. Paul warned Timothy of such kinds of people in 2 Timothy 3, 5. Notice what he says. He says, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. And herein is the greatest danger is that there are many things under the Christian umbrella that, that Christ has nothing to do with. Nearly anything can be called a church today as long as Jesus is included somehow or some way. Well, if you saw any of the Easter service at, I think it was Transformation Church, it was a wild, godless type of event. All in the name of Christ, and there are millions of people that watch it and tune into it, and they think, oh, I've participated in what Easter is all about. They have no clue. They have no clue. We are seeing a large trend in our American culture of Christians and churches into things that are unbiblical and godless. In the name of Christ, many draw people into Christless ways of life and Christless ways of worship. And we see it even in other churches who are, I can't even call them churches really, that have gay pastors and are trying to promote the LGBTQ in the church, quote unquote. So apparently it's, it's, it's unchristian to, to not accept that sort of thing in the church. Christian, this is where the rubber meets the road. We don't allow the thinking and the ways of the culture around us to affect our thinking. What is it that dictates how we think, how we behave, what we do? It is only the word of the living God. Only that. It is a sad reality that we see today. Many believers have gone after the world without realizing they've even gone after the world. For example, let's say Arkansas is the holy life, a living sacrificial life. The world is over here in Tennessee. If you're from Tennessee, I'm sorry. The world is there, right? But as the world and culture gets dark and dark, well, it moves on up to Kentucky, an even more depraved land. I'm just teasing, right? That's where I'm from. Don't tell them I said that, but just by way of illustration. So the world went from Tennessee to Kentucky. Arkansas is the holy place, right, where we're, we're holy living. Say, oh, the world's all the way over there, so let's move up to Tennessee. So the church finds itself in Tennessee where the world used to be, but they look at the world in another place. Well, see, we're still not like the world, but we've gone to where they were. We've left from where we ought to be in our holy life by what Scripture describes. I don't know if that illustration makes sense at all. That's, that's one of them, what you call it, right off, spouting off your brain, you know, just come to my mind. That's why I tend to type out what I'm going to say, so I make sure I say it right. The church has moved to a place where they don't realize they're worldly just because they're not as bad as some groups. You see, if it's of the world, we're not to allow our lives to be conformed to it, lest we lose our influence. You know what it means to be conformed? The word conform means to form according to a pattern or mold. We're patterned after that. Look with me, if you would, at one final text in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. This will give you insight as to the nature of the world. You'll notice that 
John says to his Christian audience, he says, do not love the world. Very similar to do not be conformed to the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. What's wrong with the world, really? I mean, why not? Why not love the world? What's all in the world? This is what's in the world. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, what's wrong with those things? They are not from the Father. They are against the Father. They are in enmity with your God. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever right there. The will of God versus the will of the world. Contrasted. This is the fundamental principle for the Christian. We don't mix with the world the system of sin around us. Why? Because we belong to a holy God and have been purchased by a holy Savior and been called to be a holy people. We're to make Him known to the lost world around us. We're to be the light. And so long as as the church conforms to darkness, they are not being the light. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 through 18, Paul the Apostle writes, to the church in Corinth, which greatly needed this truth, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Think about that, Christian. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. God says it very plainly. I'm yours, your mind, come out from among the world. And this is where we examine our lives and see where we are, what we're truly living for. Are we living a living sacrifice under submission to Christ, or are we living under the world? Are we controlled and yielded to it or to Christ? Tim Keller rightly said, whatever you live for actually owns you. You do not really control yourself. Whatever you live for and love the most controls you. And I think with that principle... Our chief love and what ought to control us is Christ. Letter B, and lastly, we see that we must resist conformity to the world, but rather the opposite side of this, as Paul points out to us, we must renew continually in the Word. You understand that renewal is not just a one-time thing. It is a continuous need for us in our Christian life. Because you're going to come to times where you're Realize, you know what, I've not been walking with God as I ought to be. I've been allowing this sin in my life, and I should not be doing that. The Christian needs frequent self-examination. Even the church does, too. The church must not be complacent to think, oh, we are just as good as we've ever been. Let us not ever think that, that get to a place of comfort and complacency in that fashion. We always are in need of some examination. In light of the word of God. And you'll notice that he says here, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now understand, the mind, inseparable from our heart, is the steering wheel of our life. All that we do and say begins where? In the mind. 
If our mind is conformed to the world, we will follow after the world and not practice true biblical Christianity. But as a believer, understand this. We must have renewed minds. Now, believers have already experienced a supernatural renewal in regeneration. That's the new birth, right? Titus 3.5 is a reference. You'll see that. But then we find a practical need for renewal in our hearts and minds. There's a couple things I want to close with and point you to. Applications that we can help us in this renewal process. One, I think it's important that we must guard our minds. We must guard our minds. We must be careful about what we let actually into our minds because what goes in does have an effect in some way or another. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life. That verse right there. Keep your heart with all vigilance. Vigilance, friend. You understand what vigilance is? It's an awareness. It's an alertness. Guard your heart. Why? Your heart is the rest of your life. It is what governs your life. From it flow the springs of life. And I want you to understand the mind is so easily influenced. It's fascinating in a sense. How easily our minds are influenced. Our hearts are influenced by that which is around us. It is easy to become lax in our holiness. To become lax in our worship. To become lax in our service. It is easy to become fixated on everything else in this world other than Christ. This is why we must be guarded. But secondly, we must guide our minds. What is it that is to guide our mind and to assure our life is being transformed as God would have it to be? You know the answer to this, Christian. The guide of our life is none other than the word of the living God. It's not your heart. That's a common misconception today. Oh, just follow your heart. That's the worst advice you could ever give to anybody. Our hearts are messed up. But the Word of God is a holy constant that never changes, and your heart's going to veer off. You come back to the Word of God, and it sets your heart right. That's what we need. David said in Psalm 119, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You understand this is non-negotiable if we as Christians and the church are to truly be whom we ought to be in Christ. It is through the Word that His people are renewed and become resolved in their Christian life. Why is that? Because His Word cuts to the core of who we are. It enlightens our minds and it helps us to see and convicts us of our sin. Even as a Christian friend, you as a Christian can have blind spots that you're not aware of. And God's Word will enlighten you. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of what? The heart. So Christian, we must read it, we must listen to it, we must meditate on it, we must examine our lives by it. And what is the chief end of this purpose in renewal? You'll notice what Paul says here, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this renewal, we are more focused on who it is we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live. And as we come to the Word of God and live it out, guess what? Our lives will be fruitful unto the glory of God as they are meant to be. 
And church, that is what my goal is. That is what I want for my life, for your life. I don't want you just to go through the motions of Christianity. I don't want our church to go through the motions of just being a church. I want us to be the church the Bible describes. I want you to be the Christian the Bible describes. You know that the term Christian is not something followers of Christ just gave to themselves. It wasn't a term that the church decided, well, let's just call ourselves Christians. It was given to them by other people. You know why it was given to them? Because their lives manifested they were following Christ. Christians. Christ is in the name. Acts 11.26, where you'll see that. At Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians there. That group of Christians following faithfully alongside Christ, following near unto Him. Now, there's many characteristics and traits we could look at in the Christian life. But this here is the overall summary of the Christian life. That you and I, we have a higher calling and purpose because of God and His majesty and His mercy. We exist for the glory of God, and by His mercy we ought to be here for the glory of God. But then there's that application. We are to be a living sacrifice. We are to be serving Him, worshiping Him giving our life unto Him. We are to resist conforming to the world. We are to seek renewal. We need renewed hearts frequently through the Word of God. So I pray that we would apply that to our life and keep that in mind as we approach our conference this weekend, that we would truly, genuinely pray and seek renewal in our heart and in our church. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a closing song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. We're so thankful, Father, for your Word. I am thankful, Father, that your word is alive and active. That you genuinely do cut to the very core of us, making us aware, aware of where we need change, where we need repentance, where we need confession, what we need to do. I'm thankful, Lord, that you don't just let us go on our way in our flesh and let the world draw us away and just go on that path, that you are always with your children and you are working to sanctify them. Father, we're so thankful that your love does not let us go, but it grips hold of us. Lord, it's my prayer that this text would minister to our hearts, Lord, according to your will and your purposes, and that we as Christians would truly seek renewal, that we may be the Christian we ought to be, but also that we may be the church that we ought to be, the one that your Bible describes us to be. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.